0: The broadcast is now starting. All attendees are in listen-only mode. Hey, everybody. Let me get things in order here. In case you're wondering, by the way, what I'm always doing at the beginning when I start things and then I'm kind of like shifting around for a while, I'm setting up the... uh, uh, I'm setting up the screen for recording is what I'm doing. So I just have to have everything kind of set out here. All right. <laughs> Kay says, Joey's figured I was tapping your phone lines. No, no, no. I haven't taken that NSA job yet. So I'm, uh, uh I have no power to do any such thing. um, but, uh, good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Trish is laughing about how far things have come from the old days. You know, Trish, I was thinking about that during our webathon on Sunday, um, when people were playing that clip, which was, I think, back from my Lewis and Tolkien class or something. And I was just looking at that and it was like, wow, that was a long time ago. You know, look at, look at how, you know, I was like banging rocks together, you know, <laughs> like I was so primitive. Anyway, um, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> uh, yes, yes, Yana. Uh, Mythgard is an extremely well concealed front for the NSA. Yeah, it's absolutely, uh, it's absolutely what it is. Um, let's see. Uh, Wilfred wants to know if he can ask a Silmarillion question. Uh, n- no. <laughs> well, if well, no, see, here's what you do. You have to take lessons from the other students in the class who do this very cunningly, which is you have to ask a question which sounds like a two towers question, but is guaranteed to sort of drag me off into the Silmarillion, and then I'm at your mercy. So uh, that's sort of how the game is played here. But I do, I do want to focus on, I do want to focus on the two towers because I got a bunch of stuff um, that people wanted to talk about that I didn't get a chance to. Um, Yes, Diana, you're right. I do need to have more open Q and As, uh, and I will uh, uh, I will try to uh, to remedy that at some. I think we're, it's going to be a couple weeks before we can start up the next um, academy class. So I think maybe in the uh, in the interim, I'll do an open Q and A thing. And then Wilfred, if I don't get a chance to uh, uh, <clears throat> answer your Somerian question today, then we can we can maybe try again uh, during one of those. Okay. Let's get right to it, because you guys have a bunch of questions. First, I wanted to start with a comment that uh, Michael Lucero made. He wasn't here for a class on Thursday, but had an interesting thought in response to one of the things that we were discussing. If I can, you know, get the slide to advance here. Hi, slide. There we go. Okay. Um Okay, Michael says, I was listening to the recording of the Two Towers Q&A session, and I wanted to comment on the discussion of whether Sam's internal debate was ring-induced or not. One person, arguing that it was, said that the ring plays on fear and negative emotion. I would argue that this is an argument against the ring's role in this debate rather than for it. The ring plays on fear and negative emotion, but it plays toward safety and security. E.g., I'm in a dangerous situation, so I should put on the ring because if I do, I'll be invisible and therefore safe. The ring basically argues that putting, itself, uh, that putting itself on will be an end of, or a solution to, the fear and negative emotion. In this passage, though, the fear and doubt are caused by the idea of taking the ring, so this seems directly opposed to every tactic the ring seems to take. Um, I I think that's a really good point by Mike. That's why I wanted to uh, put this up and talk about it. Um, you may remember when we were talking about that, I was kind of flailing around a little bit. I was having a hard time articulating what I was thinking. Michael has done it really perfectly. This is one of the objections that I have to that idea. Um, because Michael's exactly right. If you look at the, the, the tactics that the ring takes, um, it is almost always in that direction. Let me give you some examples. We have the uh, the Frodo in the Barrow, right? When Frodo is tempted to put on the ring and run off to safety while his friends are killed by the Barrow whites. Um, that seems to be a ring induced thought. On Frodo's part, Um, and he even has—you remember that fantasy of him running across the fields, grieving maybe for Merry and Sam and Pippin, but free and alive himself. You remember that part? That again—that seems to be exactly the kind of thing that the Ring does. Um, Even Gandalf would say that you had no choice, right? That there was really nothing that you could have done. Um, Again in weathertop right the black riders are attacking is it dumb to put the ring on yeah but again that's that's what he does and that's what he seems to be tempted to do again for that reason um remember that stray thought that he has in the common room of the prancing pony he wishes that he could you know disappear that he that he could uh put the ring on and disappear out of the silly situation right these seem to be ring-induced thoughts um The other thing that I would say that Michael's... The other sort of idea of mine that uh, um, Michael's suggestion here was kind of making me think of is I think it's easy to overestimate the power of the ring for rationalization. That is... Let me say that differently because I've been using the word rationalization differently. The power of the ring to reason on its own accord. That is, I think people ascribe more long-term planning to the ring than the text will really warrant as far as i can see for all of the the incidents which where we seem where it seems relatively clear that we can discern the in the uh, the uh the influence of the ring the ring seems to be acting in very short term not to say even sort of simple minded ways that is it seems to be trying to impel people to do the thing which seems advantageous to it at that moment that is Uh, it leaves Bilbo, it leaves Gollum when it gets the chance because he knows it sees like, here we are under the Misty Mountains, here we've been under the Misty Mountains for a long time, I gotta ditch this guy. So it ditches that guy. Um, it, uh, you know, so again, it, it wants Frodo to, uh, it's, it's, it's trying to induce Frodo on several occasions to put it on and reveal himself when there are agents of the enemy near. Um. Again, this not like long-term planning. So I think that's a, to me this is another another argument to say that the idea that the, the the thoughts that Sam has there in that debate could be induced by the ring that in that way too they don't seem to me like ring-induced thoughts. Um, for the ring to say, you should put me on and go towards Mordor because I believe there's a relatively small chance that you're going to make it through alive, and if you take me towards Mordor, then then most likely you're going to get caught, and then I'll end up back to my master, and my schemes will come to fruition. That does not seem to be, as far as I can see, how the ring thinks, um, if we can call what the ring does thinking. Um, and I'm not even sure that that's entirely accurate. Um, but, um, anyway, um, yeah, yeah, um, Yeah, yeah, Yana says uh he he agrees that it's not like in the movie where they suggest that the ring is constantly plotting to get into the hands of men like Boromir or Faramir. Um, you know, they 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 say that in the films and that it's not justified by the book. I agree. Um there are a bunch of ways. It's it's one of several ways in which the way that they characterize the ring I think in the films um is not exactly the same as the way the ring is characterized um in the books. I, I agree. That's definitely one of them. The other, by the way, since I've mentioned it, is simply the way that they say that the ring won't work for anybody else. You know, the counter argument to when Boromir says, hey, we should use the ring in the Council of Elrond, the counter argument is, can't, won't work for anybody but Sauron. Which, like, to me, completely undermines the whole point of the temptation of the ring. Um, but anyway. Um, Erica asks, you know, in my objection to saying the ring is thinking, uh, would I say that the ring is swayed more by emotion than reason? I don't know. I'm not sure exactly how I would describe it. Uh, I mean, some kind of will, some kind of activity is ascribed to the ring by Gandalf. You know, know, the ring left him, right? Um, The ring, you know, the ring wanted to be found. We get those kinds of, that kind of language from Gandalf. Um, But there seem to be two things it seem to be two things that the ring does that i can see that is in the way that it inf- that it affects people one is simply the way that it tends to corrupt the spirit of whoever either is holding it or desiring it that is the way that it turns their thoughts towards domination and uh um and basically inward towards the self and, uh, to, to towards the domination of other selves. Um, that seems to be not a plan on the ring's part, not the result of reason or emotion or anything, but just the ring's nature. That's its power. That's what it does in the same way that, um, you know, that a fire throws heat or something like that. I mean, it's just, that's you know the silmarils were bright. The silmarils, get, see, look, Wilfred, I did it to myself. The silmarils are bright, and they they give off light, right? They they shine, uh, because that's what they do, right? It's it they don't have to think about it. Um, so too the ring doesn't have to think about it to corrupt the will of somebody and you know bring them into, uh, you know, the desire to dominate other people. However, um the other thing that we see the ring doing, other than having this, Im- this kind of impact on people's spirits, is to attempt to reveal itself. This, this... I almost called it sense of self-preservation, though it's not self-preservation. Indeed, it's the thing which, in the end, ends up kind of destroying it. But um, anyway, it... Uh, this... draw back towards... Sauron. It wants to go back to him in some sense. Though I feel like every time I'm saying something like wants, thinks, something like that, that I'm speaking metaphorically, it seems to me more like... Erica, not even, again, emotion versus reason because there we're still thinking about two different human faculties and comparing which one is more like. It seems to me more likely to be... yeah. uh, k it's exactly what I was thinking of something more like magnetism than like um than like a human faculty at all um this is just what it does it's um yeah yeah um. Alyssa suggests the ring's intentionality might be a more neutral way to describe its attempt to review itself, um, but not necessarily either as a result of reason or because of emotion. Um, yeah, yeah. To, to say it has intentions seems right, though, again, um, I'm not even sure that that is not in some sense metaphorical, um, because we talk that way about things, right? I mean, if we say, like, to take magnetism, K, right? You know, say, you know, the, the two magnets want to come together, right? Um because desire is associated with movement. Um, all the way back from Aristotle, the desire is associated with movement. Um, so we can talk that way. In the Middle Ages, they talk that way all the time. That's how they explain gravity, but um, that is desire. Desire to be somewhere. Desire to join. Um, however, with the ring, it's a little bit more complicated than that, but I'm not sure it's much more complicated than that. Um, Tony says maybe more like instinct. Maybe... Um, maybe, yeah, though again, that's still I kind of like magnetism better because it's inorganic um and therefore seems to me a slightly more fitting again, I think what the ring does is a little more complicated than magnetism um but I mean, it's not like you know. It has a draw towards Sauron as, like, you know, inverse distance squared and everything. It's not like that. But, um, anyway, I think I've clumsily <laughs> made the point I was trying to make about the ring. Um, anyway, let me, I want to, I want to not get drawn into spending too long on any one question because we got a bunch of different topics to cover. Um, um, Okay, all right, having said that, I'm going to ask, answer Jordan's question on the ring, and then we're moving on from the ring. Jordan asks, what are your thoughts about on how the ring experiences or sees the outside world? Does it simply sense the spirits of those around it, or can it connect to the outside world by reading the minds of others? It seems to affect others mentally or spiritually, but can it fathom or sense physical realities like places and objects? Great question. No idea, uh, of course. Um, but... Let's see. Uh, to some extent, I, Jordan, my my impulse would be to say, um, not connect connect to the outside world by reading the minds of others, in the sense that like, you know, if it is near you, it can read your mind, and the ring knows everything that you know. Nothing like that, certainly. Um, sensing the spirits of those around it sounds to me more right. Um, there's the lord of the nazgûl leading his army across the bridge at that moment when he's stopping there and he's casting his mind around right he's sort of searching with his with his mind and his will throughout his valley wait a second is that you know he feels a disturbance right is is there some other power in my valley right here? Right, so he's stopping and he's he's looking around physically with his eyes, but we know he doesn't actually see the physical world very well. He's sort of sensing around him, and when he does, the ring is like, "Ooh, ooh, ooh! Get your hand up there and put me on, put me on!" Right, that's apparently what happens. Um, that Jordan leads me to think that what it's doing is it is sensing his presence right again not that it's lang strategy nothing that, but that you know he's there that is the witch king is there he is even sort of casting his mind out to look and the ring is attempting to reveal itself apparently in response to that um, a more complicated instance would be the prancing pony when Frodo has that temptation to put the ring on in the common room of the Prancing Pony the Nazgul are not there does he, does the ring somehow sense Bill Fernie and you know the the half-orc Southerner and can tell that they're in the pay of the Nazgul, you know, that they're influenced by the Nazgul. Maybe there's some kind of mark on their spirit by their contact with the Nazgul or their fear of the Nazgul. Maybe just simply Bill Ferney's own corruption. I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it's really... You'll notice whenever I start um, whenever I start talking about this stuff, um, I'm, it, it's there's so little to go on in the books that we just kind of have to fill in almost everything. I mean, that story, the what the story looks like, or what these scenes look like from the Ring's point of view, we have so little to go on that um, that it's almost pure, you know, I'm, I'm making stuff up and trying to see if that stuff that I'm making up seems to fit with everything that's there. Um, I don't know, but... Um, um, yeah... Yannis says uh, there are people who that would like to think of the ring um, as working kind of like a horcrux in Harry Potter that it has a part of Sauron's soul in it. Um, certainly not in the kind of physical sense that the that that happened with the horcrux in Harry Potter. Um, but the whole difficulty here is that Tolkien is much less definite about any of these things. Concepts like magic, power, will in Tolkien are left, it seems quite deliberately, and I would add quite successfully, vague. We don't get, you know, it's it's the very opposite of the kind of... Um oh who was that? I was just reading an email earlier today from Carissa maybe. Um where she was contrasting the magic in Tolkien with the magic of uh in Harry Potter. Uh so sort of, you know the difference between the kind of exertion of will that happens when you know that which so often happens when magic occurs in Tolkien and contrasting that with the you know light shooting out of the ends of wands uh in Harry Potter. It's it's so much less graphic um, in that way. And the Horcruxes are basically doing the same thing with the soul that, um, or the concept of the soul or the spirit, as the books are also doing with magic in that way. That it's, it's quantifying it. It's physicalizing it. That's not a word, but you know what I mean. Um, uh, and Tolkien strongly resists both of those things. So... Um, okay, that was you. Okay, thanks, Kay. Um, and I just, I just <laughs> unfortunately I can't remember because I was scanning like lots and lots of people's emails today to get the questions for for today. So it was all fresh in my head. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, uh, yeah. Hmm. Tom is reminding me about Isildur. If we, if the ring is, in fact, abandoning Isildur, um, there seems to be something more to that. Again, I'm I'm still not sure that suggests any kind of long-term planning, um, but uh, you know, Tom, I, I sort of wonder, in the end, if the ring slipping off Isildur's finger is any more than simply, it's I want to ditch this guy mode, right? Which it's in with Bilbo. Bilbo testifies to this, right? The fact that he warns Frodo that the ring will sometimes uh, slip off a finger where it was tight seems to me to imply the ring doesn't like Bilbo very much as an owner and is trying to leave him like it left Gollum. Now, Gollum was sufficiently paranoid that it took Centuries before it succeeded in slipping away from Gollum. Uh, Bilbo also did not let the ring slip away from him until he abandoned it itself. Isildur, you know, swimming in a river at night is a pretty good opportunity um, if it's going to slip away. You know, while he's swimming is a great time to slip away. Um, the fact that it just also happened to be in time to reveal him to the orcs who could shoot him from the bank. Um, may be an unintended consequence. Unintended by the ring, that is. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway. I'll stop my largely unsatisfactory answers to these questions, though, again, I just emphasize that um, the uh, there, there's really very, very little that we know about this. So, you know, it's really hard to be very definite about how the ring acts, why the ring acts, what the ring is thinking if it does, how it works. Um, Yeah. So I'll just come back to what I initially said, which is that, to me, I don't see much evidence that the ring is capable of long-term planning. Anyway. Okay. Uh, I want to get to uh, the question that was in Kay's email that I was reading where she was talking about Harry Potter. Um, And this is... I'm going to warn you at the beginning... I am not going to answer this one satisfactorily, because I don't think there is a good answer, but I don't want to duck it either. It's a big question. Kay asks, Do you think Tolkien wanted readers to glean moral—sorry, I'll come in again— Do you think Tolkien WANTED readers to glean moral guidance from his stories? I care about reading an author's work the way the author wants it read, and I think Tolkien wanted his stories read as stories for their own sake. Yet there seem so many points where his characters would offer wisdom for life itself, not just tell a good story. I do see a great pull against didacticism in his work, and I think this was a point on which he and Lewis differed. But then, as in Sam's meta-speech about the great stories, Tolkien apparently promotes the use of stories in informing our present choices in how and why we live. And surely, as a medievalist, he would have been no stranger to the idea that true poesy, imaginative art, ought to delight and instruct. I suppose what I'm asking is would it be respectful to take away from the two towers conclusions about means versus ends choices in our own lives? Okay. Uh, The primary you know this the the primary reason that I'm not going to be able to give any kind of definitive answer to this question is that of course it is um, this question is is asking um, a you know get inside of Tolkien's head and guess what he was thinking, or what he wanted um, kind of question, and you know, as I'm sure most of you know, I get real uncomfortable when we start going in that direction. Um because we can't really know what was in his mind. And what's more, as I've said on many other times before, at the end of the day, I'm not sure that that is actually the number one most important thing. I know to some people that sounds like blasphemy, but I don't mean it that way at all. In a sense, basically, I think that my belief about that actually follows, um, is really primarily informed by Tolkien's own teaching about stories and the importance of stories and how they work. If stories are, in fact, in a sense, a thing beyond you, if a great story um, is to the author as Niggle's painting was to Niggle in Tolkien's story, Leaf by Niggle, then Niggle's mind is important in the making of of the tree, of the painting. But at the end of the day, what Niggle was wanting or trying to accomplish is not the most important thing. The tree itself is... The most important thing, um, and Tolkien, I think, if you, but if you want my opinion, Kay, what I would say is, I think the evidence suggests to me that Tolkien was kind of conflicted on this point. Actually, I think you are absolutely right to say that he was—he uh, was very leery of didacticism. He disliked um, preachy stories that were overtly trying to teach you something. And you're right that that was a point on which he and Lewis differed. Um, C.S. Lewis was much less worried about uh, preaching, um, had much less against didacticism, and I totally am, agree with that. And it's it, for me personally, I like that about Lewis. Um, I, I like didacticism. I enjoy sermons. So what can I say? Um, <laughs> anyway, um, Tol- so you're right. Tolkien was not comfortable. He never wanted to be up on, you know, up on a so- soapbox or behind a pulpit telling people, "Here's what's right and wrong. Here's what you should do." At the same time. Look at how he responds when people take a meaning that he feels is not right. Like, again, to use the simplest example, his reaction against the World War II interpretations that were placed upon the Lord of the Rings you know, soon after its publication. Um, And he immediately spoke out against that. No, 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 that's not what's going on in the story. Now, there are other reasons for that. That is, he was objecting to the mode in which it was being interpreted as if it were merely an allegory and not a story on its own. But when he feels that somebody is misunderstanding the story, he tries to clarify. He talks a lot in his letters about the meaning or meanings of the story. Um, And he does not actually seem to be willing to be perfectly um, relativistic. no, not relativistic. That would mean he's uh, moving at almost light speed. Relativist about it. Um, uh, yeah, Trish is reminding me of Lewis's vocabulary, which is so useful here. C.S. Lewis, in, uh, in one of his uh, essays, I think it was on criticism, if I remember correctly, um, introduced... No, it was on stories. Shoot, I forget which one it was. Um, but anyway, he, uh, he, he, he introduced the very important vocabulary difference. The difference between the author's intention and the story's meaning. Um, An author intends a story means. Sometimes the meaning that a story has, or at least has for many people, is in fact what the author intended. That's what the author was thinking about when the author wrote that story. But that isn't always the case, and it needn't be the case. An author could sit down to write a story which does one thing. To give a really clownish example, uh, uh, an author could sit down to write a comical story. His intention is to write something lighthearted and funny, but he completely fails to be funny, uh, and instead, his readers find his story deeply moving. Right? It's like, oh, that was that was the most impassioned thing I've ever read, and he's like, actually, I was joking. Right? the author's intention has not been fulfilled, right? He failed to to, to to do, to write the story he intended to write. Does that mean the story has no meaning? Does that mean that the reader is wrong? No. If the reader perceives that meaning in the story, that's the meaning that that story had for that person, right? Um. But it, so in Tolkien, I see two things, Kay. On the one hand, I do see a perce that persistent shyness about didacticism. He doesn't want to be preachy. He doesn't ever want to come out and say, take this message home. I want you to learn this from this story. Here's the list of points that I want you to, like, you know, take home and apply to your life after reading the story. He never does that. Almost never does that. But at the same time, he the other thing I see in him is real twitchiness about the meaning that other people perceive in his stories. And he's quick to jump in and say, no, 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 that's not right (laughs) when people uh, suggest meanings that he doesn't approve of. Um, So, uh, not approve of, doesn't agree with, but anyway, um, or at least is different from the meaning that he sees in the story that he wrote. At the end of the day, for me, the meaning of the story is what's really important. Um, And that's why if an author says the story doesn't have that meaning or that wasn't what I had in mind, my response is not exactly I don't care. My response is, well, that's interesting. It's interesting that this meaning appears to be there in the story, but you didn't intend it. Interesting, right? And I'm interested to hear what authors do intend. I don't always find the intention of authors... At more interesting or even as interesting as the meaning that can be seen in a story on its own. Um, I actually am not myself a very big general fan of, like, author interviews and stuff. I've done some author interviews, and I'm going to be doing some more author interviews. Um, but, uh, and that's kind of fun, but it's never been what I've really loved most. I, 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 would, I would rather read... If I've read a book that I like... I would ten times rather read it again than read a long discussion from the author about what he was thinking when he wrote it. That's For me, that's what I would generally do, because, again, it's about the question of meaning versus intention. Um, uh, yeah, uh, Alyssa is pointing to another piece of evidence, um, about Tolkien respecting authors' intentions. Uh, Tom Shippey talking about Tolkien's response to medieval texts um, and Alyssa gives a quote uh, from Tolkien and Gordon in their edition to Sir Gowan and the Green Knight um, talking about appreciation as far as possible of the sort which its author may be be supposed to have desired. I'll say that again. Um, He advocates appreciation as far as possible of the sort which its author may be supposed to have desired. So yes, like he definitely does show that kind of, uh, that kind of respect. Um, but... Um, so anyway, is it respectful to take away from the Two Towers' conclusions and means-versus-ends choices in our own lives? Yes. It would be disrespectful to claim that Tolkien was trying to teach them to you. Um, that is to say, it would be disrespectful, I think, to go around saying Tolkien wants us to learn this from this book. That would be disrespectful, because he's been very careful not to be sort of preachy in that particular mode. But to say, I perceive these meanings. I find, you know, I I see the story pointing to these things. I hear those things, and I believe that to be wisdom. I would like to apply that wisdom in my own life. That seems not only perfectly appropriate, but the kind of things that happens when great stories are written, <laughs> right? Um, I I won't call it a prerequisite to great stories, but certainly um, it's hard for me to imagine somebody coming to Tolkien and saying... You know, I was reading The Two Towers, and I feel like you know my own understanding of how to like you know make choices in my life has really been enriched. And Tolkien responding by saying, "How dare you!" Um, I, <laughs> I certainly don't see again to put it in a sort of an absurd way. Uh, I, I don't, I don't, I don't see that happening. Um, again, I think that the key thing here um, is simply to make sure that you're keeping clear the distinction between meaning and intention. That is. It's great to apply it. It's great to sort of see these kinds of lessons. And K, okay, I even agree with you that there are places that great stories passage comes close. It's not there. It's not too didactic yet, but it's this close to didactic. Actually, I think, um, because of the way that it is modeling how these kinds of stories, the ways in which these kinds of stories can be um, can be applied to the lives of readers. Um, That passage is, to me, like the first cousin of didacticism. It's not didacticism, but it's close. Um, But anyway, uh, seeing these things is fine. But the minute we cross the line and start saying, here's the take-home message Tolkien wants us to take. That's when we, I think, are really starting to get onto shaky ground, um, and where it becomes really easy for us to start doing reading in a way and talking in a way which is not particularly respectful to the to the way that Tolkien you know sort of you know really wanted, almost insisted on being read. Um, yeah, Erica says I think this fits in with Tolkien's ideas about the importance of fiction that we see a mirror of our world in the fictional world subcreation. Uh, so then, it will follow that we could take things away from the story that we could apply to our lives. Yeah, exactly. I mean, again, you look at the, you know, going back to unfairy stories and the, you know, the, the use of 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 fairy stories. You know, the sort of the, the 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 good to be taken from them is all about how it affects us, and it's all about connection to our life, to our real world. You know, escape, consolation, recovery. Um, you know, there he plainly expects that. Uh, a reader is going to have his or her own experience of the world enriched by reading these stories. Um, so certainly nothing nothing wrong with that, certainly. But again, where people get in trouble, and I, I say people because certainly goodness knows there are books that cross these lines, right, and start... Um, Getting didactic about what Tolkien is saying and it becomes so easy just to sort of project that didacticism backwards um, to Tolkien himself and, and then then you're getting kind of in trouble. Um, I think. But anyway. Next topic is Saruman. There were a set of Saruman related questions, um, which I will try to get through. So let's 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 look at Saruman here. An excellent question from Brandon. Why does Saruman choose the white hand as his symbol? The eye makes sense for Sauron, but why this for Saruman? You know, Brandon, I'm not sure I ever thought about that even once. I mean, I guess I must have at some point. But it's one of those questions, this happens so often for me with Tolkien, somebody will ask a question, and as soon as it's asked... It's a perfectly obvious question. That is to say, it's perfectly obvious. It's a perfect. It's perfectly obvious that the question should be asked, and and I feel dumb for like not actually thinking it through. Um, but I never did really think that through. What do you guys think? First of all, can I back up a second? The eye makes sense for Sauron. I agree, though. How? Um, there's. Uh, we have to be careful about that, especially since. The movies, right with the whole flaming eyeball thing um the fact that Sauron is visibly represented as a flaming eyeball in the films makes it feel even more is sort of retroactively makes it feel even more of a given that Sauron should be have his symbol be the red eye right but if we Project backwards. <laughs> Erica Smith was just asking exactly the same thing. Follow-up question. Why is Sauron in, uh, in rep- represented by the eye? Yeah, um, because there's nothing there's nothing in the book that of course suggests an actual flaming eyeball. That is to say, it's not that he manifests himself that way. It is his symbol. People talk about the eye of Sauron. But why why the eye? Well, again... Sauron is associated with this kind of searching will. His eye is looking everywhere. He is, um, he is prying into everybody else's business. Um, you know, he is casting his thought and his mind around um, to see things, to expose things, and, to, um, uh, and then ultimately you know, he wants to take them and to conquer them. Um, that symbol of the eye, the flaming eye of wrath... Um, is again, you think about the difference between Sauron as Lord, Sauron as Master, compared to say the King of Gondor or the King of the Mark, right? Theoden would never take as his symbol the Eye, right? Because he's not watching anybody. Um, he's minding his own business, which is his own country, right? Um. Sauron is his symbol is the eye because he's always looking out. He's always searching outwards. Um you know that he so his 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 direction is always outwards because he's oh he's his desire is to dominate others and to assimilate other peoples, other lands, other kingdoms into his own. Um and so if you're gonna do that, you've gotta be pointed outwards. Um you can't just be paying attention to your own business. Now, that's a really um that's a really sort of uh, silly way perhaps to think about Sauron's eye. Um, now several people are pointing thinking about um the white hand. Several people are pointing to his uh his cunning handiwork of the smith, um thinking of his names uh you know, as Alyssa is pointing out, um Searu, meaning craft. Or crafty—that is, one who is skilled. Generally, one who is skilled with his hands, and we see um, his—that is, Saruman's emphasis on 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 making things and machinery and stuff like that. Um, so that it would be a hand does make sense in that way. Um, white, white from his color, yes. Though, when he starts putting white hand badges on his servants is after he has already forsworn the color white. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Wilfred points out, of course, and then Orthonk means the same thing. Yes, it's true. Orthanc and Searuman... Um, they're not exactly synonyms, but they're very closely related to each other. Um, yeah, exactly. As, Sarah point, as, as, uh, as, as Wilfred is pointing out, he claims to be the many colored. You'd think he'd be like the rainbow hand, right? Um, so why white? Why white? Why is he stuck with white as his color? I have a theory. I have an idea, but I want to hear your ideas. What do you think? Um, yeah. 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 Giannis says he too was wondering why his symbol wasn't a many-colored hand. Um, it would look bad. Maybe it's just a graphic design choice, right? I mean, like a, a rainbow hand, like a, what, what, like a hand with like each finger a different color? That just looks creepy, kind of you know, kind of you know, sort of says to me, Kindergarten take-home project, you know, doesn't say to me symbol of world ruler. Um, Yeah, yeah. Yana says, I think he still wants to appear to be good, and white has always been the color representing good. Um, I think so. I think so. Um, He speaks with disdain of white when he's talking to Gandalf. Um, but he's... One simple thing is he's differentiating himself from Sauron, right? He is in rivalry to Sauron and not yet in his service, right? Um, well, if Sauron is, lives in the Black Land, Mordor, which is literally what that means, um, if he lives in the Black Land uh, and, you know, his, uh, he's, he's totally got this black and red thing going on, Saruman is going to do something different. Remember in his speech to Gandalf, um, that is Saruman's speech to Gandalf. That Gandalf reports to the Council. Um, Saruman says there would be no real change to our ends, only in our means. Right? Um, that is, he seems to be, in a sense, um, uh, in a sense, he may still believe to some extent uh, that it. Because I'm not sure that that speech to Gandalf is entirely is just lies. I think that there are ways in which Sauron has genuinely convinced himself that he's still fighting the good fight. He's just doing it better now, right? He's upgraded his uh, his his means, but his ends remain the same. He is the champion of good. Maybe he sees himself, even maybe he has convinced himself into being to believing that he could be the a rallying point for good against Sauron. That he is still Sauron's opponent. Uh, Alyssa, I agree, delusion is a good word. Alyssa says he's he's, you know, not yet in league with Sauron, but still under the delusion that he's opposite to him. Um you know, as as Alyssa points out with Gondor, we've got the you know, the Dark Tower and the White Tower. Um he still sees himself as White Tower, right? But he's deceived himself. Um Yeah, yeah. Um Wilfred says that that also seems suggested, too, when he dies, um, seeing his spirit turning and seeking the West. Return of the king, but yes. Yes. See, Wilfred, you're totally getting how this works now. You were this close to getting me to go off and talk about the the return of the king right there. Um, uh, Kay says, then there's the idea of the hand that wears the ring. I wonder if he took that symbol because of his his intent was to be the ruling hand over all Middle-earth once he found the ring. Um there's a, there's an interesting, it's it's an interesting possibility there. Um, uh, I mean, I doubt that's what he had in mind when he adopted the thing, but I mean, there is a way, you know, the uh, hands are certainly associated. One of the associations with hands is power. Um, you know, I'm thinking of old turns of phrase, you know, so he was a mighty man of his hands, that means he is powerful, he is strong. Um, So, strength, you know, um, and in that sense, dominion. Um, But, uh, you know, the other thing that I'm reminded of is the Argonaut, as well, with its hand raised in warning. Um, You know, Saruman being like, dude, here I am, you know. Um, I am, you know, I am, I am warning you to sort of, you know, to take me seriously or to treat me as lord, um, to think of me with the kind of kingship. Remember how he started off. He started off as Warden of the Tower of Orthanc, as delegated by the steward, not even the king, of Gondor, right? Um, and now he's, like, double usurping, right? He's jumping way up and saying, I am now overlord. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um So anyway, that's excellent Saruman question number 1. Here's excellent Saruman question number 2 <clears throat> from Sean Murphy. What is the dark will that is set against Aragorn, Legolas and Gimli? Some will that lends speed to our foes and sets an unseen barrier before us. Seems plain that this is Saruman, but why is he what what is he doing? What is happening? Um Shauna, great question. What is happening is exactly a difficult thing to talk about. This is precisely the kind of thing I was pointing to earlier, where Tolkien is so indistinct, is so um, non-concrete in his description. Um, What is happening here seems to be magic. Um, uh, The mind of Saruman is searching around. He can't use... The palantir anymore um he used to use the palantir to spy on stuff now he can't because the palantir is uh stuck on the mordor channel uh and he can't change his channel anymore so um he can't uh use the palantir for this but gandalf doesn't need a palantir to for instance detect frodo in trouble on amon hen and come in and uh give a nice little Gandalf quotation in italics directly to Frodo's mind. Take it off, fool! You can always tell it's Gandalf when he calls people fools. Um, But, uh, um, anyway, again, Gandalf doesn't need a palantir in order to do that. Um, So, Somehow he seems to perceive. He is certainly he has sent out these servants, and his his you know Gandalf tells us that he is very much focused on them, on the orcs and their return, um, to the extent that he even comes out himself to try to meet them. We're told that's where it's why he briefly encounters Aragorn and Legolas and Gimli on the edge of Fangorn. But um, so in doing this, he seems to be exerting his power in some sense, exerting his will to lend speed to the orcs and set an unseen barrier before Aragorn and Legos and Gimli. Can he see them precisely? Is he opposing them personally? I doubt it. Um, The connection between an evil overlord and his servants is a difficult to quantify one. And it goes all the way back to the Silmarillion. Um, In... The Silmarillion. We see. We are told that Morgoth invests part of his spirit and his power in his servants. That he disperses himself, in some sense, his will, his power, in some sense. What exact sense that is, we're not told. Um, among his servants, and he therefore is reduced by this. They are elevated in a sense, but he is reduced. Is there something like this happening, where he is exerting his own will? Um, Again, presumably he doesn't have a palantir, he can't see precisely what's happening, but he is exerting his will to support and give strength to the orcs, and also to discourage anybody who might be following them, anybody who might be chasing them or opposing them? That seems to be, that's how they understand what's happening. Um, And Aragorn can sense it. Legolas can sense it. And they conclude this must be Saruman doing this. Um, So (laughs) Okay, Wilfred, what's your Silmarillion question? Go ahead and ask it. I can't promise if it's too much of a digression, I won't go there. But I'll see if I can work it in. Um, (laughs) Um yeah, Rachel says uh, the Maiar seem to be able to use their minds or wills to influence external things and people. Um, yeah, you know, she points to Gandalf also influencing the minds of of, of his companions. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but again, this is a so what I would point, what I would say about this passage primarily. I can't give you any more detail because we don't know any more detail. But this is one of the passages I would point to if somebody said give me examples, like, say somebody said, and I have known people who have said this, I don't think there's really any magic in Middle-earth. What I would say, I disagree with that point. It's an extreme view. um, But if somebody were to be arguing that side of the question and saying, I think there's no magic in Middle-earth, this is one of the passages I would point to as a counter-argument. If somebody said, show me five passages in The Lord of the Rings where there is obviously magic happening, this is one. It's not that clear. it's not that clear, there's not that many details given, but clearly the will of Saruman is acting in this magical, supernatural, spiritual sense on others. Um, on not only the wills but even in a sense the bodies of others and so therefore um uh therefore i would uh, uh I, I that's therefore i would i would point to this um hmm, okay um James says Sauron seems to do something similar during the battle outside the Black Gate in The Return of the King. Absolutely. And this is why when Sauron's mind is pulled away from everything and 100% of his will and, and mind and energy is focused on the cracks of doom um, when he recognizes his peril, remember what happens on the battlefield, right? The captains of Mordor, presumably orc and human, are suddenly they suddenly stop and are like, what do we do? Maybe even, what are we doing here, right? Um, and uh, uh, and, and to the bereft of will, they said. Suddenly, his captains suddenly steerless, bereft of will. Um, that is a testimony to how Sauron had been influencing them prior to this. Um, anyway. Um, Wilfred, I did get the question. It is a little much. I'll see if I can come back to it. If not, say that we'll definitely do it another time. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, Luke says, "If Gandalf is a Lorn, do we know who Saruman is?" Yep. In the essay on the Astari, we're told that he is uh, he is one of Aule's people. Um, but uh, it's hard because. Well, yeah. <laughs> we can't do one more week, Yana. Can't do it. Can't do it. Um, yeah, look, I would recommend read the, uh, in, in Unfinished Tales, read the essay on the Astari, and you'll get much more information there. Um, yeah, yeah. And I always try to get through my Saruman and stuff. Saruman's voice. Concerning Saruman's ability to persuade, his silken tongue and velvet voice, Christopher Lee was truly the perfect voice for this part. Did he teach Wormtongue, or did Wormtongue have the ability already? And I was also wondering, does Faramir also have this ability? Okay. This is a really good set of questions. Um, It goes very nicely with the previous one. Saruman's use of his voice is that magical? Yes. Is he casting a spell? Well, yes. He's talking, right? He's, uh, it, it is a spell in the literal sense. Um, but what we have there is the same as what we were talking about in the previous question. That is, the exertion of one will over others. The, the influence that, you know, someone exerting their will to bring about a change in the world around them or in other people. That seems to be what magic is and how magic works in Tolkien. Um, Sarman's ability to persuade is magical. But I don't think it's discontinuous from the ability of a regular person to persuade. Someone who is not a wizard, but who is very persuasive, they can bring you around to their point of thinking. Right, someone who is very persuasive, very charismatic, can influence your will through their words. Right? Um, did he teach Worm Tongue? Yes, I think he did teach Worm Tongue. Did Worm Tongue have the ab- the ability already? I'm sure, he did. Um, uh, this is one of the reasons why. Although I understand the choice to do the whole kind of hokey exorcism of Theoden thing in the film, right, where Saruman is understood to be actually possessing Theoden in some way, and Gandalf casts him out. There are ways in which that works very well for the film, and and there are ways in which I kind of like that scene, as it works, as it functions within the film. But the differences between that and the book are at that point tremendous, I think. Um, And that's the primary thing. There is no spell on Theoden that Wormtongue didn't cast. Wormtongue is no wizard, but he is very persuasive. And he is uh, persuasive with the persuasion of Saruman. He is corrupting Theoden's will. Um, So does Faramir also have this ability? Yeah, certainly, in a sense. Notice... Gollum lies to Faramir, right? Um, He says, Kirith Ungol. Is not that its name? Remember what happens? Gollum says, no. And then he screams as if in pain and says, yes, yes, we heard the name once. Faramir has just influenced the will and mind of Gollum. That seems pretty clear that he's done that. Um, Faramir does seem to have... And then you think of the influence that what Pippin feels the first time he feels Faramir. What Baragon feels about Faramir. He is devoted to him because he is a captain whom he loves. Yes, but why does he love him so much? Um, Faramir has this power. Faramir uses this power for good. Wormtongue uses that power for evil. But again, I think the point is that this power, magic, and again, I'm, try, I'm trying through my gestures to invest these words with sufficient vagueness, <laughs> because again, Tolkien so rarely uses words like magic, um, and whenever we talk about them, we almost always make it more definite and concrete than it is in the book. But um, the way that Tolkien describes it, it's fairly—it's there—is a kind of a continuity. Um, that is, you know, if you have with the voice of Saruman. If Saruman is at one end of the spectrum, a totally uncharismatic person, um, you know, who is unappealing and unpersuasive, is at the other end, um, and then you've got people along the way. There are many ways in which people can um, use their wills to bring other people around, can use their wills to uh, influence people in various ways. Um, Saruman is very good at it. Saruman has additional resources in some sense. But again, that's that's what it means to be a wizard, it seems. That's what it means to be uh, powerful. That's what it means to be able to do magic in Tolkien, is that your will is of such a kind that it has much more than the usual power of making things happen. And um, and of influencing other people. Of of influencing the world around it, and of influencing other people. Um, But again, everybody has that, to some extent. Um, If I exert my own will upon, say, my backyard, I have very limited powers to make it look like the thing I want it to look like. I can turn it Uh, I have very limited powers of turning it into uh, this image that I have in my head of what would be my backyard in its most beautiful state. Sam, as an experienced gardener, would be better able to impose his will upon my backyard, or his backyard. I wish Sam would come and impose his will upon my backyard, actually. Um, Galadriel has even more power to do this, and her backyard is really nice, right? She's got a sweet backyard. Um, she can make mallorn trees grow, right? Um, anyway, um, yeah, I it's totally true. I'm, I'm not, I am not an end wife. Absolutely not. Um, does any of this make any sense? Um, This is something that comes into play in The Lord of the Rings when you talk about who could oppose Sauron with the ring and how. The ring gives you power according to your stature. That is, stature is the Tolkien word for... At least it's the word that I connect from Tolkien to this idea of the capacity, the power of a person, their capacity of their will, their ability to do things, and make things happen. Um, depending on their st- on their stature, they have more or less power for other things. So Denethor's stature is really high, for instance. Denethor... If Denethor got the ring, could he do some damage with it? Yeah. Could he overthrow Sauron? Not sure. But he's got capacity. Denethor is... Um, I mean... Faramir doesn't take after strangers, right? Uh, He gets it from his dad. Um, It's there. Less so in Boromir, we're told. But it's there. Aragorn could. Uh, Saruman is actively sweating about Aragorn. Um, Aragorn, lots of stature. Gandalf, lots of stature. Galadriel, lots of stature. Frodo, increasing stature as he goes along. Um. Anyway. Trish says, Saruman, though, is especially good at this, wasn't he? He's the only character against whom listeners specifically get warned uh, concerning his voice. Um, Yes, yes, uh, that's true. Um, I guess what I would say, Trish, is that this is... Remember Galadriel, when she says, this is, if you like, the magic of Galadriel. Um, She sort of suggests that there, there are particular things that she does. Particular ways in which she can exert her own will over things. Um, Knowledge is one of those things. That's why the, the mirror which reveals stuff. Saruman, his specialty is persuasion. Um, could Galadriel be awful persuasive if she wanted to? Yeah, probably. Elrond is healing, right? That's one of his specialties. His specialty is that he is the foremost healer in Middle-earth. Um, so you've got Elrond, Aragorn, uh, you know, Eorath in the Houses of the Healing, and then, you know, like so again, you've got a spectrum. They, They... they you know, different people who have different capacities. But again, it's not like it's not like apples and oranges. Again, I've been referring to, you know, casting spells and to to Harry Potter to, to invoke a different paradigm. Um... Magic in Tolkien is very unlike magic in most role-playing games. You know, it's not like in Dungeons & Dragons, where you've got one character who is a warrior and one character who is a mage. The mage has the ability to cast spells. The warrior doesn't. That's exactly not how it is in Tolkien. Again, the things that people who do magic can do tend to be the kinds of things that other people can do, just... More of it, uh, and different in some ways. Um, anyway, um, Trish asks, Are we comparing apples to oranges in some ways? Yeah, in some ways, yeah, well, you know, comparing like wizards to 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 uh elves to uh to 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 men, um, yes, but. Again, I I don't see that kind of a discontinuity even on that level. Um, it seems to me that primarily the difference between you know Elbereth, Melian, Goadriel, you know Melian, Luthien, Goadriel, um, you know, and on down you know, to human women, to rose cotton. I think the difference is one of scale. That's a really crude way of saying it. Um, And I think it's probably overstating the case. But um, uh, but but that's kind of how it seems to me to work. Alyssa asks a great question How, do, how would I explain the staves with virtue set upon them? That's more spell like than will in operation. Yes, I was saying will can affect the wills of others, but it can also affect the world. Um, Goadrill, again, Goadrill has made La Florian what it is through her will. I sang of leaves, of leaves of gold, and leaves of gold there grew, right? Um, Faramir, who set the virtue of finding and returning on the staves, Faramir he lays a curse upon Gollum um that is his he seems to be able to to use the crude language cast spells, but again that's not um that's not the way that it's talked about it's about exertion of will um and the exertion of the will of some um does the exertion of the will of some affect, you know, inanimate things? Yes. Again, smiths in particular. I mean, what is a magic weapon uh, in Tolkien? There are clearly weapons which would be characterized as magical weapons in any other world or in any other system, right? But again, what that is, is, you know, think of the 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 elven cloaks, right? We put the thought of all that we love into all that we make elven cloaks, are they magic cloaks? Yes, they're magic cloaks. You could call them magic cloaks. What they are are cloaks which contain the thought of the woodland and the trees and the rivers and everything else. Um, that's all been put into them. So the, the will, the love of the makers of the cloaks, it has worked upon the cloaks in some way, so that they reflect and are they are altered. By that is from normal <laughs> garments. They are altered. They are made magical in the way that a sword of worth, to quote Beleg Strongbow, um, is altered by this by the mind of the smith and by the power of the smith who works upon it. Um, yeah, yeah, Alyssa, exactly. The barrow blades too. The smith who wrought Mary's sword bounded about with spells for the overthrow of Angmar, right? That is to say, when he made it, he was thinking, he, he was infusing this this blade with his own antipathy to Angmar. Um, and um, therefore, the sword remembers, and the sword retains some of that power which was given to it by the smith. Um, now, sometimes these things are associated with language, and sometimes the uh, the power which is imbued in uh, you know non sentient things um, is associated with runes. You know, there will be runes of of virtue placed upon things, but a rune of virtue, you know, a rune of power, if somebody who didn't know what they were doing just copied that rune of power somewhere. Would that rune have power? I don't think so. I, I mean, again, based on everything that we see in Tolkien, I wouldn't think so. I mean, if somebody is just, like, trying to crib the rune- the, the runes of power, you know, some totally incompetent smith or something, or somebody gets a perfectly plain sword and says, I'm gonna make this into glam drink by, by like, scratching runes of power onto it, it's not gonna work. Um... Jordan says, similar to words of command. Yes. Um, is it the word, or is it the commander from which the you know, the virtue, the power of that primarily comes? Well, both, in a sense, but again, um, whatever the word of command was that Gandalf spoke that destroyed the door to the chamber of Mazarbel, uh, you know, I'm guessing if I said that, or if you, like, slipped it out accidentally, it wouldn't close any doors, or lock any doors, or blow up any rooms. Um, But, uh, anyway. Okay. As you can see, you guys brought up some really complicated issues uh, in your questions, so I'm sort of struggling to get through things here. But I'm not doing as badly as I could possibly be doing. How's that for... Um, yeah. K, excellent. K says again, Harry Potter is the opposite of this. Ron can get into the Chamber of Secrets by, uh, by mimicking the word that Harry said to open the locket. Yeah, um, yeah. Ron sneaking into the Chamber of Secrets and the off-stage destruction of one of the Horcruxes. Um, that is that whole sequence. K is for me one of the one of the prime examples I would give for what I dislike about the Deathly Hallows. Um I don't disrespect Harry Potter in general. I like the Harry Potter series and I, I have great admiration for a lot of what J. K. Rowling did. Um but I persist in finding book seven bad. I, I dislike it in lots of ways. I think it's an ineffective story. Um and kind of drives me bonkers every time I read it. And that's one of the th- that's one of the moments, Kay, that I dislike most for exactly that reason. Um, it trivializes so much. But anyway. Um, <laughs> Ed agrees that book seven was unreadable. Yeah, it's painful every time I read it. There should just be more camping. I, I could read, really, I could read hundreds and hundreds of pages of camping. But anyway. Um... Good. Tom says it's why Finrod. I'm thinking, please, getting us away from the Deathly um, uh It's why Finrod loses to Sauron, but Luthian succeeds, and why Aragorn sings, sing, sings of Luthien beneath Weathertop instead of Alendo in Gilgalad. Yeah, yeah. In part, Tom, I think it's a good way to think about it. Um, yeah, very good. Okay. Um, I just got an email about a half an hour before class, from Rachel Barton, who couldn't be here today. Um, Oh, yes, she can. Hi, Rachel, you're here. Um, And uh, Rachel was pointing out, very rightly and perfectly appropriately, that I completely and utterly skipped the Palantir chapter. That in this entire... uh, this entire... Course on the Two Towers. I haven't said the first word <laughs> about the Palantir or that whole chapter and whole incident with Pippin. Um, Rachel, you're completely right. I am utterly guilty of that. Of course, like, I couldn't talk about everything. Um, and I just wanted to point out that Rachel made that observation and then I'm going to carry on not saying anything <laughs> about that <laughs> because there are a bunch of other things that I need to talk about. Um, and then, right as I was just about to leave, Wilfred just sneaks in this question about the palantir, thus drawing me into talking about it. Does the power of the palantir corrupt? Nope. Okay. Good. Glad we settled that. Um, this one does, of course, because it's not the palantir that's corruptive; it's it's uh, uh, it's the will that you're encountering behind it it's the will that sauron is exerting through it that makes that palantir dangerous just like um people say you know, i mean it's it's like uh um you know, guns don't kill people, people don't kill people, you know, uh, you know, TV is bad for you. Um, well, the TV is not itself harming you, right? It's, um, and similarly, the Palantir, um, that is, you know, that box that's on your wall or sitting on that table is not actually inflicting harm upon you, nor does the Palantir. Um, uh, but what it enables you to do, Denethor is harmed by it, um, but that would be talking about the return of the king also, which I'm not going to do. So there we go. Um, <laughs> yeah, Jordan asks, are telephones co- corruptive? Uh, yeah, you know, there's an argument to be made. But no, exactly, I agree. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, um Okay. I'm done talking about Palantir. Okay, no I'm not. Okay, all right, Rachel, I'll throw you one tiny little thing. Because this is one thing that... uh, And it's not even a... It's not even a... A a thing. It's just an observation. As a word. The word is dainty. When Pippin... Is... Hanging out with Sauron through the Palantir, Uh, Sauron says, Tell Saruman that this dainty is not for him. Do you understand? Say just that. The word, dainty, this dainty is not for him, seems to be significant in some sense. Tell Saruman this dainty is not for him. Do you remember where else we heard that? Here's the other half of my observation. In Flotsam and Jetsam, concerning which I also said almost nothing, um, in Flotsam and Jetsam, they're talking about the pipeweed. And uh, they say, Saruman kept this dainty for himself, it seems. The pipeweed. Because there are no pipes in the guardroom. Coincidence? Saruman keeping a dainty for himself? Say just that? So, Chris, Pippin isn't a snack. He's pipeweed. I guess. Sarah says, isn't a dainty a consumable? Wouldn't that make a Hobbit a consumable? Yeah, he's like a treat. Um, You know, like a... like a cupcake or something. Yeah. Um... Is that a coincidence? That is... That turn of phrase that is used by the hobbits during their conversation with Aragorn and Legolas and Gimli about Saruman and the pipeweed, and Sauron's use, which sounds almost like a quotation of that passage, accompanied by his insistence that Pippin use those precise words to convey his message back to Saruman. Discuss amongst yourselves. I'm going to move on, and we're going to talk about the Numenorians and Faramir now. Okay. Uh, Carissa says, could I expound upon Faramir's comment about middlemen who used to be highmen but now have descended to love fighting and battle and are now more like middlemen like the Rohirrim but with memory what does that mean aside from Numenor that is of course they remember uh, Numenor this I think this is an, a really important theme and it sets up what we see in the return of the king the, the emphasis on the hands of a king being the hands of a healer and everything um, and also by the way this sets up the thing that makes me jump up all all up and down when people want to go all simple-mindedly... When they want to to apply very simple-minded, frustratingly simple-minded feminism uh, to Eowyn and say that her leaving being a warrior and choosing to be a healer is Tolkien putting her back in her feminine place, uh, and uh, you know, safely, you know, escorting her out of the masculine realm with a little pat on her bottom uh, in this patronizing way? Um, and I get really frustrated by that line of thinking. I, I get where people are coming from when they say that, but to say that is entirely to miss all the this entire theme, which. Faramir is pointing to right here. Eowyn is not getting sent back down into the less important feminine sphere. She is going up to a higher sphere um, by becoming a gardener, by becoming a healer. Let us go to Ithilien and there make a garden. Um, Anyway, that with, with memory, with memory of higher things, is not just literary. Curse, of course, it is memory of Numenor. Um, but it's not just like... It is not, for instance, to say, like a modern citizen of Rome who has memory of greater things. Like, say, you know, once the Romans ruled the world, right? That's cool. I like to remember that idea. No, it's not that. Memory of higher things, memory of greater things, that they have declined spiritually, morally. Um, the dif- the difference between the high and the low, the high and the middle, is where their values are placed. To be high, in this sense, to be high men, is to have your values be more Valinorian than Earthian. That's a bad word. Anyway, um, to value life and peace and healing and beauty instead of power. Um, Those people who just love the sword for its sharpness and the arrow for its swiftness um, are people who are not valuing the highest things. Are those things goods? Yes. But thinking in turn the terms we've been using in the Two Towers class so far, those people are confusing the means for the end, aren't they? Being a warrior is an important means, right? Faramir says so, right? War must be while we seek to defend our land against a destroyer. It's a means, but it's not the end. If fighting becomes the end, if being the best warrior, the greatest warrior, is your whole goal, you're missing the point. You're missing the whole point of what the warrior was supposed to be striving towards. That kind of big picture thing. Um... Uh, um, that kind of big picture thing uh, is what, um, is what Faramir seems to be pointing to, and that is what he talks about. That I believe is what he's referring to by the memory. That is not just that we have memory of like when Gondor used to be bigger and better than it now is, but rather those values are not entirely forgotten. That idea of keeping these high ends in view and seeing power and you know, um, might and splendor only as a means to that end, um, to the end of protecting and developing those things. Um, that's what he, uh, um, that's, I think, what he's talking about when he refers to memory here. um, Arthur asked a really great question on Facebook this morning. Oh. Um Aragorn and Faramir are both Numenorians. But it strikes me that there are differences between them. For example, Faramir seems more religious than Aragorn. He does the standing silence. He makes more reference to the Valar, where Aragorn makes makes more historical references, but doesn't seem to make an effort to connect this to real time. And yet he is the heir, has millions, genes, etc. Um, It's a really neat observation uh, by Arthur. Here's what I'd say. I would say that it is a testimony to not differences in their beliefs or differences in their standings, but differences in their point of view. I'm not quite sure how to say it. Their positions, their roles, even. Faramir is standing and looking back at Numenor. His thoughts are, in a sense, backwards. Um, He wants to retain the memory. Um, he wants Minas Tirith to be loved for her ancientry, right? For her wisdom. Um, it's not that he has no plans or goals for the future, but he is, he is, he's going to be the steward of the city. Um, Faramir's primary, the primary thing which informs Faramir's life seems to be, and this is going to sound insulting, but I don't mean it, to be so. Nostalgia. That is, looking back upon the glory of Numenor, trying to recover that to some extent in himself, um, trying to hold on to that as much as he can, to turn others back towards that, to resist that slide down from high towards middle. Um, Aragorn is focused on his role in the big picture, right? Remember um, Sam's insight? You know, bless me, we're in the same tale still. Aragorn knows full well from the beginning that he's in the same tale, right? You know, he's... uh, Remember that passage from the appendix about Aragorn and Arwen? When uh, uh, he first meets Arwen and he says, I was singing about Luthien and, and I thought you were Luthien. I thought I was seeing a vision of Luthien because I was singing about Luthien just now. And and Arwen has that w- awesome reaction where she says, yeah, I get that a lot, right? Um, but notice what she adds at the end of that, which is, um, but perhaps my fate will be not unlike hers, right? That is, Aragorn and Arwen, no, they're in the same story, <laughs> Right. He sees that continuity. Um, what does he shout when he goes into battle? Elendil, Elendil, right? He's he's he is. Um... Remember that moment in the in the Battle of Helm's Deep, when there is that perception by the people. It is as if Helm has arisen and comes back to war. Helm for Théoden, King. Um, again, like there's a connection between us and the heroes of the past. Aragorn knows there's a connection between him and the years of the past. Um, Elendil! Elendil! He's always there. Right? Um, that's why I think when he talks, he talks about, um, as Arthur says, historical stuff. Um, Faramir is focused on sort of preserving that culture of the recognition and appreciation of high things. Remember the conversation that Mary and Pippin have in the Houses of Healing, right? Um, you know, you know, that, talking about how Tooks and Brandybugs can't live for long on the Heights. Um, but Mary says, yeah, but it's it's better that we know about them, right? And that we can remember them. And of course, when they come back to the Shire, what they and Sam primarily do is to bring this knowledge of high things and elevate the Shire by bringing those... Anyway, f- that's what Faramir is doing, right? Faramir is to Gondor as... Sam is to the shire. Sam in his later career as chronicler, as keeper of the Red Book. Right? It's not The parallel isn't exact, but I hope you see what I'm getting at when I say that. So their roles, their positions, how they think about things, how they relate themselves to this tradition is very different in these ways. And so that's why I think we see this different emphasis. Not because sort of one is more pious than the other or anything like that. Um, But, uh, Anyway, um, yeah. Yana suggests that I stop fooling myself and we just carry on with the Return of the King class since I'm just constantly talking about the Return of the King. Fair enough. No, 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 no. I must, um... I'm going to stick to my promise. See, the Two Towers class I started near the beginning of the Indiegogo campaign because um, I just because I, I really wanted to. i had been meaning to do this anyway for a long time, and also because I wanted people. You know, I felt in in talking about the Mythgard Academy during the Indiegogo campaign, I was. You know, basically trying to say, like, we'll do fun classes, it'll be cool, but I wanted to give people a more practical sense of, like, this, this is the kind of thing we will do. So I said, okay, let's just go ahead and launch the Two Towers class. Um, But I promised that I would let everybody choose what they wanted to, uh, um, that I would let everybody choose what they wanted to talk about. So I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, seize the reins to myself and uh, try to dominate the wills of others, I will submit. Whatever people want to do, that's what we'll do. I hope that we will do the Return of the King, but if the if the Indiegogo funders, collectively, as a voting body, choose never to do the Return of the King class, we won't do it. I, I, I'll do it someday, but not for a while, so we'll see. Um, anyway, um, uh, I am out of time. Let me touch on one other thing, because my answer is easy. Uh, Erica, Henson's question about orcs. Another thing I notice is that orcs seem to have a shared history and mythology of their own. Gorbag talks about someone loose hereabouts who, as is more dangerous than any other damned rebel that ever walked since the bad old times, since the Great Siege, which is undoubtedly uh, the, the Battle of the Last Alliance, um, when the Numenorians and Gogolad laid siege to Mordor. The orcs seem to have a shared history there here. They both know what the bad old times and the Great Siege are. They aren't just mindless war machines, they have an actual cultural heritage. One wonders what else there is to it. Yeah, one does. Doesn't one? Uh, that's all I got. Um <laughs> There's uh um there's uh um All I'll say about this is we get very little about orc culture, about what's going on with orcs. What I will say, which I've said you know, many times before in other different contexts, Tolkien, over the course of his life, grew more and more uncomfortable with orcs. It's clear from how orcs are talked about sometimes that the story, the Lord of the Rings story, most of the time wants us to view orcs as almost mechanical devices, right? They are simply embodiments of evil. Think of the language Frodo uses in, um, uh, in The Fellowship of the Ring when he's advocating for, the, for capital punishment for Gollum, right? And he says, surely now he's, he's, he's as bad as an orc and deserves death, as bad as an orc. It's a given that orcs deserve death, right? The issue under discussion in that moment is pity, and having pity for people, and how good pity is, uh, how important it is to show pity to people. Nobody, not even Gandalf, suggests showing pity for orcs. Pity for orcs seems inappropriate. In fact, again, Tolkien, or not to not, Frodo in that moment seems to allude to orcs as like the default measure. Since, um, since it's a given that orcs have, you know, like... That pity is completely out of out of court for them. That that's the standard we're going to bring up. I think even of the tone that Aragorn uses when he says uh, when he is tending the cut in Sam's on Sam's scalp that he gets uh, in the orc fight in Moria and says, "Good luck, Sam." Uh, many people have received worse than this in payment for the killing of their first orc. The killing of their first orc, like you're putting notches on your belt, like. You Know it's like a life accomplishment, you got to cross that off. You're gonna kill some orcs before you die, right? Because it's a good thing to do. Again, that's that's the way that um uh that's the way that orcs are talked about in this. We're gonna keep score how many orcs we kill, and that's fun, right? Uh, to Legos and Gimli. Um, you know, uh, um, when Treebeard hears that, uh that Gimli's axe is not for trees, but for orc necks. You know, Treebeard says, oh, that's a better story, right? He loves that. Oh, whoa, you've you've murdered lots of orcs? Fantastic. Uh, Then I like you, right? And again, there's no self-consciousness on the part of any of these characters when they're talking about this. So the overall framework of The Lord of the Rings seems to invite us to see orcs as soulless creatures, as those who are un- Worthy of pity, to whom pity would be inappropriate. But we do get moments, like the one that Erica has pointed out here, where we get some sense of the internal life of orcs, some sense of their own culture and their own point of view. Deeply corrupted, as we can see... um, all the time. I mean, Shagrat and Gorbag's conversation, not to mention which happens after, which is in The Return of the King, and thus, therefore, needless to say, unmentioned by me. Uh, But Shagrat and Gorbag are a great illustration of that corruption as well. It's not like they're secretly good guys. They're not good guys. Not to anybody else, not to each other. Um, but, But I agree that passages like this lead us to ask the question. And Tolkien was asking the question. It's something he was really uncomfortable about. Um... Uh, it's it's something that Tolkien was really uncomfortable with later and certainly felt to be a weak point in his overall sub-creation and something that he was rethinking. Um, anyway. Okay. Um, all right. That's all I have time for. Um, okay, Wilfred, I'm not going to tantalize you. I will answer Wilfred's Silmarillion question because he's been a good sport. Wilfred's question was if the Valar remember it was a Silmarillion question and he asks if the Valar are embodying themselves as the children of Iluvatar they're taking forms as unto those of the children of Iluvatar doesn't that suggest that they have a clear idea of what the children of Iluvatar look like therefore why does Aulay make funny stunted people who are only vaguely like the children of Iluvatar um, why, does he, why does he mess that up Um, and my one answer is I don't know. Well, first of all, one answer is we don't know exactly how close the Valar's forms were to the forms of the Children of the prior to them meeting them. That is, they took forms Is it possible that the forms taken by the Valar prior to the Awakening of the Elves differed from the form of the elves, as much as the dwarves' form differed from the elves, that seems to me entirely possible. Maybe in a different way, right? Um, uh, maybe um, likely might have been much bigger. I don't know. More glorious in some way? I don't know. But anyway, it's not necessary... I, I think it's, it's not necessary to know that, or to think that prior to the awakening of the elves, the Valar we're already looking exactly like elves. The second thing is that don't forget, Aule had some particular design plans, right? When he he fashioned the dwarves, he fashioned them to be tough and enduring. That is, he planned, I won't say upgrades, because that implies that he thought the idea for the children of Iluvatar really could use some uh could use some some uh, some improvements. But part of the way that he you know, we're told that they look the way that they do, um, in part as an expression of the particular desires that Aule had, the particular plans that Aule had for them. Um in particular their stubbornness and resistance to domination, their toughness. Um, but uh Anyway, so that was uh, the peculiarity of Aule's own... In a sense, you could call it like Aule's bias made manifest. Remember, the music as a whole um, comes from the mind of all of the Valar working together. The dwarves, at least in their design, come from Aule, working on his own, by himself, without even his wife. Um... And that I think also has a lot to do with it. You wouldn't expect one valar, work, one vala, working alone, to um, generate, to create the perfectly balanced um, thing, any more than you would expect one vala singing alone to produce the whole orchestral score of the music of the valar. So um, Wilfred asks if he had conferred with Yvonne, that would they look different? I bet they would. I don't know how exactly, but I bet they would. Um, Yeah, yeah, I'd be willing to put money on that. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, That's what I think. Um, Brianna points out that a lot of artists tend to depict the Valar as more animalistic or metaphorical in appearance in regards to the way they look before the elves arrive on the scene. (sighs) Yeah, I think the text is ambiguous on that point. I mean we're told in the, you know, early on, we're told in, you know, in the Anuindo, it's it in the Anuindo and the Valaquenta that they take these forms. We don't know if they had those forms, um, in fact, prior to the Awakening of the Elves, but we don't know that they don't either. And it seems to me entirely possible that they do. I don't know. Um, but uh, I could easily imagine, it, it seems to me entirely in keeping with the story that they would. I don't see any intrinsic objections to that on that point. Um, and, but but as I say, I wouldn't expect them to look like perfect elves. I, I bet they got their own forms wrong too. Bet they correct them afterwards out of love and generosity to the elves. But um, But yeah, so anyway, that's pure speculation on my part. But anyway, Wilfred, that's my answer. Okay, I gotta let you go. Uh, I I, I gotta I'm letting my uh, children go hungry here so I should go and feed my children but anyway thank you guys for joining me thanks for those of you who have been very faithful uh, uh, in attending the class Um, we're definitely in future academy class is going to cut back to once a week I know it's been hard for some people to keep up uh, with us uh, at a two class a week pace Um, so we'll definitely do one class uh, one class a week Um, this has been you guys have been great this has been a really fun class to do I'm very much looking forward to our next Mythgard Academy class Whatever it turns out to be, um, and um, and so I'm thinking. And Yana's complaining that the reading was already too light. Read it again. Read it more carefully. That's the answer. But anyway, um, so let's um, let's let's uh, focus on our next class. Those of you who uh, have contributed to the campaign, be thinking about what classes you want. Um, uh, so we're about to do some, uh, some nominating stuff. So, um, uh, anyway, um, uh, yeah, and if you haven't donated yet, well, yeah, go ahead and do so. There's, uh, there's still nine hours left in the campaign, uh, and the ability, the capacity for you to donate after the official Indiegogo campaign ends as well. Um, but anyway, thanks everybody for joining us, and I look forward to seeing you guys again soon. Bye now!